Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. For starters, I'd like to apologize about the lateness of this episode. I tried to get my episodes up uh, Thursday or Friday night, and I am recording this at about 5 p.m. on Saturday. Uh, reason for the lateness is um, I was going to have Casey help me out with this episode. Unfortunately, uh, her children got sick, as we've mentioned in a previous episode. Casey does have two young children, and as anyone out there who is a parent of young children knows, unfortunately, sometimes they get sick. Um, so I am flying solo tonight. Now, my topic is going to be Dungeons & Dragons in video games. Before I get to the topic, uh, just a couple of things I'd like to bring up. Uh, first, this is probably old news for some of you out there, but the Geekery in General podcast is now available through Podbean. So go to www.podbean.com, and uh, if you look up Geekery in General, uh, you should also be able to find it by my username, POI Game Studio. You should be able to find my podcast there, so you can either stream it from the website, or you can download it directly to your computer. Not only that, but it is also available through iTunes, so there's another way you can uh, access it, and you should also be able to access it through the uh, the podcast app on iPhone, iPod, and uh, iPad. Not sure how it works with like Android um, or other smartphone systems. I have an iPhone. I haven't really used an Android system, so I'm fortunately I'm not sure how it works there. But you might be able to get it on a, an app for that phone as well. Now I will continue to offer the uh, podcast through my online store, uh, at least probably for another month or two. Uh, maybe longer. I haven't quite decided yet if I'm going to uh, keep offering it through uh, the online store or if I'm just going to phase that out and only offer it through Podbean. This brings me to my next point, the website, www.poigamestudio.com. I have done some revisions on it. I decided to try to do a more simple layout, figured it'd be a little easier to navigate, and not only that, uh, it would probably load up faster. So if you please feel free to visit my website. There is a contact form on there, so if you want to contact me there, you can. Or if you go to Facebook, look up Point of Insanity Game Studio on Facebook, you can find me there. That's another way you can contact me. reason I'm bringing this up is because I want to hear from you. Uh, if you have any comments on the podcast, please feel free to let me know. Uh, if you have any ideas for any topics you'd like to see me cover or you know any guests that have appeared on my show, if you want me to bring any of them back and uh, see if... You know, maybe one of them want you want to see one of them uh, help me with a topic. Please feel free to either contact me through the website or leave a comment on my Facebook page, and I will certainly consider the idea. Also, uh, I 
do have a upcoming product which I am working on and that is going to be an expansion for the modern monks role-playing game called urban fantasy it will contain new specialties as well as uh, optional rules and information for using modern monks with uh, AD&D 2nd edition the game system that inspired it and in other news the Afterpeak systemless setting is available in print format through drive-through RPG and I will also be making the Modern Monks books available in print there uh, in the near future, probably in about a month or so. Uh, reason is I have some proofs I had to order, so I'm going to wait for those to come through because I want to make sure the book is going to turn out the way I, I wanted it to. Um, so then you'll be able to get those books in print format if you want. Unfortunately, the reason it takes too long, it's just how one bookshelf handles their print program. Uh, previously, all my print products have been through uh, Lulu. Lulu's nice and easy because you just upload your files and you can print your book. And usually, you know, if you use the cheapest shipping, usually you'll have it within a couple weeks, two, three weeks. Uh, the company that DriveThru works through is a little different. Um, what they do there is they have higher standards, I guess you could say. You upload your files. Uh, they send it to the publisher, or the printer rather. The printer checks the files to make sure that they, they meet the press qualifications. And then once that's done, they'll let you know so that you can um, order your book. And they do require you to um, order a proof before you make the, the book available to the, the public. So I will be having my some of my Modern Monks uh, game books up in the near future again, probably about another month or two, uh, just waiting for the proofs to come back. But on to today's topic. Dungeons and Dragons in video games, or video games based on Dungeons and Dragons, I suppose that sounds a little more fluid. But the reason I wanted to do this topic is I love D&D. I've been playing it for many, many years. Second edition is still my favorite. Uh, so I picked up fifth edition. Unfortunately, have not had a chance to try it yet, uh, but definitely want to. I've heard a lot of good things about fifth edition. But I'm going to go back to my childhood. Again, this is when I was playing basic first and second edition. Now, anytime you're taking a role-playing game, and trying to translate it to a video game, it does provide a unique set of challenges. Here's what I mean by that. Role-playing games, by their very nature, are flexible. They allow players to do, well, try to do just about anything. And while the game master can certainly say, no, you can't do that, they can also say, well, you can try doing that make a dexterity check with a minus 10 penalty. Uh, video games, it's a little different because you're limited in what the, the console that you're programming for, you're limited to what that can do. So let's say that you wanted to have your fighter who wears full plate mail and carry a two-handed sword do a somersault underneath a giant's legs and hit him in the back. 
Well, if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, you can do that. And again, the game master will probably say, okay, you're a fighter, you're wearing plate mail and using a huge sword. Yeah, you can make the roll, but you're going to take a stiff penalty. Now, in a computer game or video game, you don't have that option unless the programmers happen to have had the foresight to think, you know, maybe fighters using plate mail and big swords are going to want to somersault between the legs of giants and try to attack them from behind because it would look cool. If they thought to put that option in there, then you can use it. Otherwise, well, you're pretty much limited. Now, of course, when you do take a role-playing game and you do translate it to the, a video game, one of the things that the developers are certainly going to have to keep in mind is how accurate do we want to stay to the rules. Now, uh, one game that I can think of, for example, which not D&D, but uh, Shadowrun. Now, I myself have never played, well, no, I have played Shadowrun just one game session, and it was a long time ago, so I really don't know much about the rules or remember much about the session. But back in the day, they, in the 16-bit era of video games, they did release Shadowrun for the home consoles. They had a version for the Super Nintendo and a version for the Genesis, and both of them were different and unique from each other. Now, I played the Super Nintendo version, and I had a lot of fun with it. I really enjoyed it. From what I understand, though, the rules don't follow the actual Shadowrun rule system very closely, though. And I know that they also did release a version for the Genesis, which, from what I understand, is a little closer to the rules than the, the Super Nintendo version is. Now... Does the fact that the Super Nintendo version deviate from the rules make it an unenjoyable game? I personally don't think so. So whether, you know, that, I guess it depends on whether it bothers you or not, or how close you want the video game to emulate the actual uh, role-playing game rules. Well, let's move on to the, or let's actually move back, sorry, <laughs> to the Nintendo era, the 8-bit era. Now, I know around this time, uh, there were Dungeons & Dragons games available for computers. Uh, I believe the company was SSI, and they made what they called the Gold Box series, uh, which, you know, when you're moving around the cities, it was a first-person perspective, but it was pretty cool when you actually got to the fight scenes, there were the little miniature characters you had that, you know, you'd move them around, and, you know, of course, if you were going to cast a spell like Fireball, you had to be careful because it showed the area was going to affect, so it was possible to catch your comrades in the range of the Fireball, so it made you be very careful. Also incorporated other rules, like, uh, for example, if you tried to move past an enemy, they got the free attack on you. Um, also, fighters could do one thing that was kind of cool. They could sweep. So if you were surrounded by uh, kobolds, goblins, or other uh, small enemies, uh, you could attack a number of enemies equal to your level. So that was really helpful when you're surrounded by four or five goblins or kobolds. Now, the one that I played for the NES was Pool of Radiance. Now, I have read the novel Pool of Radiance. It's been a while, but from what I can remember, the video game did follow a lot of the major plot points of the novel. Um, it did introduce quite a few new things, of course, but that's okay. That 
just makes a more interesting game experience. Now, the worst part of Pool of Radiance for the Nintendo was, without a doubt, character creation. The reason is, here's how it worked. Well, first, you were limited in the classes you could choose. Unfortunately, you couldn't choose a ranger, or a paladin, or a druid, or a bard. You could only choose the four base classes. Fighter, thief, wizard, or magic user, rather and cleric and then there were multi-class options also you couldn't necessarily choose all the classes that were available to the race you wanted when you started with character creation you were given a list of of that consisted of a a gender a race and a class combination so let's say you wanted to be a dwarf well your only option was you could be a dwarf male fighter but that's about it if you wanted to be say a female dwarf fighter cleric you just couldn't do it. Once you chose your selection, you chose your uh, race, class, gender selection, you were presented with your randomly generated statistics. Now, this is where it could be really frustrating. The game did not distribute the statistics in any way that would make sense to most gamers. There were times where I would create a fighter who had a strength of, say, 9 or 10, but had an intelligence of 18. Now, of course, if you ever wanted to play a fighter that was smarter than he was strong, you can. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But in a video game, I would rather have that 18 in strength rather than in, in intelligence. Also, another thing that was frustrating is it didn't use the rule about the optional rule about how characters started with max hit points at first level. You got however many hit dice plus your con bonus. I remember there was one time where I actually managed to get a fighter with a strength of 18100. Unfortunately, he also had a constitution of like 13 and 3 hit points. So as fun as it would have been to play that fighter with a strength of 18100, he wouldn't have lasted very long with those 3 hit points. <laughs> Oslid uh, captured the mood very uh, well because it was possible for your party of first and second level characters to easily be annihilated by a group of orcs or goblins. One of the things I really liked about the game, though, is how open it was. You started out in the city of New Flan, and of course there were taverns you could visit, temples, uh, equipment stores. There was also the town council office. The council office and when you visited the clerk the clerk would give you missions and when you'd go you'd accomplish the mission you'd come back and they would give you a reward uh, gold experience and sometimes magic items well one of the things that was kind of cool is you didn't have to complete the missions in any specific order also the council clerk only gave you a few missions at a time so if you already played the game you could try to accomplish a mission before uh, the city council gave it to you. For example, one of the missions is to go into Old Flan and find history books. So if you knew about that, you could just go into Old Flan, go to the ruined old library there, get some books, and come back and uh, you know get a reward before the, the clerk even presented that mission. So Pool of Radiance definitely a very good game 
Uh, if you still have an 8-bit Nintendo that's in good working order, uh, and you happen to see a copy of Pool of Radiance, would recommend picking it up if you can. A lot of fun to play if you have the chance. Unfortunately, not all of the other D&D games that were released for the NES were as good. Uh, there was one I remember, Hillsfar. And I was really excited when I got this because the cover looked really cool. It had this really nice picture of like a knight in front of a castle. Unfortunately, the cover art, well, I, you can say this about a lot of old video games. Unfortunately, sometimes the cover art makes it, the game look a lot cooler than it really is. The thing I didn't like about uh, Hillsfar, you really didn't have much direction as to what you were supposed to do. And it really favored thief classes, because from what I remember, there was, you know, the town you went through and there were other areas you could visit. And whenever you came to a chest or a door, you could try to open it. And, well, you could try to force it open, or you could pick the lock. And if you were a thief, I think you were given more time. But when you were picking the lock, you had a set time limit. Um, but there were, you had your lock picks, and you had to select which lock pick you wanted to put into which section of the lock. And then, you know, once you did that, it would... Uh, you know, you'd open the lock. Unfortunately, if you put the wrong one in the wrong place, you broke your lock pick. And I never really played it enough to figure out how to replace your broken lock picks. So, Hillsfar, unfortunately, was not really uh, a very enjoyable game. I know they also had Dragon Strike, uh, which was based in the, uh, the Dragonlance series. This one was basically Dragon Combat. It wasn't a role-playing game, though. This one was actually a, a top-down perspective shoot-'em-up. And from what I remember, it was actually pretty cool. You uh, had your dragon, and you flew around fighting giants and other dragons and uh, other units on the ground like archers and cat people at catapults. Uh, it took place during the War of the Lance. Uh, from what I remember, the last boss was Tachesis. Only real complaint I had about the game was the play control. Because your dragon was always constantly moving forward, so you couldn't stop. But you chose left and right to either change direction, but you use either up or down to either go fly low to the ground or fly at normal height. And that was important to be able to keep that straight because... Of course, if you wanted to attack something on the ground, like, you know, an archer, you had to fly low to the ground. But, of course, if you're flying low to the ground and you ran into some trees, uh, you took damage. So, it, it, again, it was an enjoyable game. Wasn't really memorable, though. Certainly uh, wasn't as memorable as some of the other uh, shoot-em-ups I played for the NES. And I believe there was also a computer version of Dragon Strike, but this one was actually first-person perspective. Now, the other game that I remember for the NES was another Dragonlance game. This one was Heroes of the Lance. It was in... Now, I enjoyed it. I've, you know, seen reviews. I'm, it, I think it gets a little more hate than it deserves. I mean, granted, okay, it's not... A classic game. It's not for everyone, but it wasn't that bad. So it follows the 
the part of the plot of Dragons of Autumn Twilight, uh, which, again, awesome Dragonlance book. If you've never read Dragons of Autumn Twilight, you know, go to your local bookstore or your local hobby store, see if they've got a copy. If you have a chance to pick it up, definitely recommend it. Excellent story. Well, this takes place in the Zach's Tarith part of the game, where uh, your objective is you have to find the lost discs of Mishical. Now, there's a lot more to the actual book. You, they skip the part where you actually journey there, because, again, you're just going into the, uh, the Zach's Tarith, and it, it's all side perspective. You got all eight Heroes of the Lance. You did have to be pretty careful, though, because... Uh, you, you only had a limited amount of spells. Um, they handled spells a little differently than you would in a normal D&D game. Uh, Gold Moon, of course, had the, the the Blue Crystal Staff, which she could use to cast clerical spells, and I think she got like one or two hundred magic points, and each spell took up a certain number of points. Uh, Raceland, of course, had the Staff of Magus, Magnus and... Uh, I think that only had like 100 points, um, so again, you had to be very careful, but, you know, everyone else had uh, other attacks they could use, like Karaman had his spear he could throw, uh, Tannis and Riverwind had bows, uh, Tasselhoff had his hoopack, Sturm, uh, he, I don't think he had a range attack, he just had his sword, and then uh, Flint could throw his axes as well as, uh, you know, use his axe in melee combat. Now, I know that they did make a uh, sequel to, to uh, Heroes of the Lance. This one, uh, from what I recall, uh, took it covered the last part of Dragons of Autumn Twilight. So what happened after they escaped Zax Terrace. I've played this one on an, an online emulator. Um, unfortunately, it was only released in Japan. Um, so it was all in Japanese, so I had no idea what they were saying, but it actually looked uh, a lot better than the, the first one, because it looked like you had options for equipment, um, and it actually reminded me a lot of Zelda II, The Adventure of Link, because it was in a top-down perspective, and as you're walking around, you would you know, come into encounters, and it would switch to a side perspective, and of course you would have to fight off the enemies, and then you could continue on your merry way. Well, this brings us to the 16-bit era, and the only Dungeons & Dragons game I remember playing uh, at this time was, uh, was Eye of the Beholder. It was okay, it's just, it was all first-person perspective, which, I don't know, I, I'm just not a fan of it because I tend to get lost in these 3D environments. Uh, that's why I always like the top-down perspective. I guess maybe it's just because I'm, as I mentioned this before, I'm pretty much an old-school gamer. But uh, this one was a little different because it did, first of all, I'll give you a couple extra classes. Uh, you could be a fighter, a ranger, or a paladin. Uh, and then, of course, you still had your option of a cleric, magic user, and a thief. You also had more variety with the races, so if you were a dwarf, um, you could be, I'm pretty sure anyway, you could be a, a dwarven fighter thief if you wanted to, instead of just being limited to a dwarven fighter. 
one of the things I was kind of challenging about this is you were it, basically your party was arranging a two by two grid, and you had you know usually you were fighting the opponents in front of you but if opponents attacked you from the side well then that would leave one of your characters in the back row which was usually going to be your uh, cleric or your wizard uh, that would leave them vulnerable and there were two slots for NPCs as well another one of the mechanics that was actually kind of challenging is there was a food mechanic um, so you did have to find and eat food, otherwise you would starve and then you'd slowly die. So, obviously, if you had a cleric, one of the most useful spells you can learn in that game was create food and water. Now, the only other D&D &D game that I remember from the 16-bit era uh, for the two home consoles there, I know they did have one for Genesis. I think it was called Warriors of the Eternal Sun. I haven't actually played it. I've seen a friend of mine play it, and from what I can remember, it did actually look like a pretty cool game. Um, it did have the 3D uh, parts whenever you went entered a dungeon, but what I recall is when you were in like the overworld type, you know, you had the top down, and you know, it was you know, it was, was kind of like with Pool of Radiance where you. Um, in, so the way Pool of Radiance worked is whenever you got an encounter, it would switch to this isometric perspective, and you had the little figures representing your characters, and you moved them around. So again, you had to be careful because, you know, if you tried moving past an enemy, they could attack you. Uh, if you were, say, equipped with a bow, and, you know, an enemy got in melee range, you'd have to unequip your bow to equip a new weapon. And, of course, you had to be careful where you aimed your spells. Now, one thing that was interesting, though, about Warriors of the Eternal Sun, this one actually decided to use the basic D&D &D rules as opposed to the advanced D&D &D rules. So I just thought that was kind of interesting and uh, that they chose to use the basic instead of the advanced rules. Now, I know at this time, while there wasn't a lot in the way of D&D &D games on your uh, your home cons on the consoles uh, from what i understand the uh and flourished on the home computers as mentioned before uh pool of radiance was originally a computer game and from what i recall they actually uh modified that engine the ssi engine they used it for uh forgotten realms games they used it for dragonlance and I think, from what I understand, they also modified it for use with science fiction settings. Um, I believe they actually did make uh, one or two Buck Rogers games that uh, used the SSI engine as well. And I uh, think the reason they did that is because at that time, uh, Lorraine Williams had taken over TSR. And since she was the heir to the Buck Rogers franchise, she wanted... TSR to start focusing on making the uh, Buck Rogers games as well as, you know, the D&D &D games. And from what I understand, there was also a uh, a spell, spell jammer, the spaceship one. Uh, I haven't played it, seen screenshots of it. From what I understand, it's not the best game ever made. It's, uh, I guess there was some problems with, like, play control or like I said, just it wasn't very memorable. 
now, of course, when we started to move towards away from the uh, the consoles, and well, the, not the consoles necessarily, but when we started to move away from the cartridges and more to the discs, you know, there were more D&D games, I know, that were released for various consoles, and even the arcades. <clears throat> uh, one particular D&D game I remember from the arcades, again, using basic D&D as its inspiration instead of advanced, but there was uh, the Dungeons & Dragons arcade game. And I know there are actually two of them. I think the first one was called Tower of Doom, and then the second one was Shadow Over Mistara. Uh, so it was made by Capcom, which was a good choice, because it was a side-scrolling beat-em-up, which is interesting, because that's not the type of genre you normally would associate with a role-playing game. Uh, in the first one, you are only limited to four characters, the fighter, the dwarf, the elf, or the cleric. But it was pretty cool because you could pick up magic items, uh, you know, rings that would contain spells or um, the, the, you know, the spellcasters, the elf and the, the cleric could pick up, uh, I think, like scrolls or books that would recharge their spells. Uh, then when they came out with the second one, uh, this time they also added uh, the magic user and uh, the thief as well. And one thing that was kind of cool is the characters did all have their own little, uh, you know, special perks. So it was kind of interesting because uh, a lot of, see, a lot of the side-scrolling beat-em-ups of this era were very formulaic. Usually you only had a choice of three different characters. Uh, there was generally the slow-but-strong character, the fast-but-weak character, and then the well-balanced character. Uh, as an example, one of Capcom's most well-known beat-em-ups, uh, Final Fight. You had a guy who was the you know a ninja. He was fast but weak. You had Hagar, the wrestler, who was strong but slow, and then Cody, who was the the in-between guy. So that's one of the things that was really enjoyable about the D&D games is they, they just had a lot more variety than the, the side-scrolling beat-em-ups did. And another thing that was actually really fun about them, and I don't remember if they did this in Tower of Doom, but I, and Shadows of Mistara, or the second one I know they did this, is there were actually choices. Uh, for example, you got to a certain part, and it would ask, okay, do you want to travel over the land, or do you want to go by river? And once you did that, you got to the river stage where you were on your raft and there were little islands that had enemies. So you had to try to dodge the the islands. Otherwise, you know, if you collided with one of these islands, you'd be attacked by the enemies. So I thought that was kind of cool. And nice thing about Shadows, Shadow Over Mistara and Tower of Doom is um, I know they are available for home systems. Um, I have a Wii U. And... Um, I do have the version for the Wii U, which is actually a really good deal because you get both games, and of course there's different you know things you can unlock like uh, cheat codes and you know of course concept art and other things like that. So if you have a Wii U, uh, definitely check out the uh, Dungeons and Dragons uh, arcade collection if you have the chance. And I'm not sure if it's available for like Xbox Live or uh, PS. The, the PlayStation Network. I don't have a PlayStation, so like I said, I'm not sure what's available there. And while I do have an Xbox 360, I 
haven't really bought much for uh, Xbox Live, so again, I don't know uh, what's all available there, but definitely a game worth checking out. Okay, so to get back on track, um, once again, once we started to get to the late 90s and the uh, early 2000s, and again, the, uh, the disc-based systems, I know there were a few D&D games that were released. Uh, one I remember playing was... I think it was called Slayer, D&D Slayers. It was for, I think, the 3DO. Uh, it was a first-person perspective. A friend of mine had it, and I only played it, like, once. But, I don't know. wasn't very memorable. I think, for some reason, just D&D, at least in my mind, Dungeons & Dragons just doesn't really work as a first-person perspective game. You know, then, of course, you had all sorts of computer games that were released for, uh, you know, D&D around this time as well. The only one, I know there was the Baldur's Gate series, which I've never played. Um, I did play Icewind Dale, though, which uh, I think it's, I'm not sure if it's part of the Baldur's Gate series or not, but I did play, uh, I think it was Icewind Dale 2. Um that was actually a really good game, and I will say it's it's probably one of my favorite uh, D&D games I've played next to Pool of Radiance. Uh, plot's a little more linear. That's about my only complaint, but it gives you the, you know, again, the options. The uh, you, know, you can be the ranger or the plaid, and I think you can be the bard as well. Um, don't remember if there's druids or not. But it's pretty cool because you had the isometric perspective and you didn't have to move all your party at once. So this is where it was kind of cool because, you know, let's say you wanted you were in the caves and you wanted to have your thief scout ahead. You could do that. And this was actually kind of important because I, I think they use they call it the fog of war where, yes, you can scroll to see other parts of the map that you're on, but you can only see areas you've been. Anywhere else, it just... It's black. It doesn't show up um, until you've actually been there. And some of the voice acting on it was pretty amusing, too. Uh, one of the things that was kind of cool is after you selected your character, and you could actually adjust your stats. Um, so I, you got, like, a certain number of points. So, you know, naturally, if you were playing the fighter, you know, a fighter, a ranger, a paladin, you could take away uh, stats from... You could take away points from like your uh, your intelligence and use that to boost your strength or your constitution. But one of the other things about character creation that I thought was kind of a nice touch is there were different uh, voice sets, uh, personalities you could choose for your character. And uh, one of the things that was kind of cool is um, if you, and any of you have played the point and click type strategy games like uh, Warcraft. You know, would remember would you know would, would know about this, but whenever you clicked on one of your uh, your characters, it would say something like, you know, what are your commands, sir? Or you know, I'm ready. Well, if you clicked on it too much without actually doing anything, your character would start to smart off to you. And one of my favorites is there's one of the personalities that goes, you know, you're treating me like I'm a pawn in some kind of game. So a little breaking the fourth wall. I thought that was kind of cool. And uh, there was one like, I'm not listening to you. La, 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 la. So like I said, that was kind of fun. Just, you know, click on them until you start to annoy your characters. 
my only real complaint about uh, about Icewind Dale, pretty difficult in some of the, the later stages, um, but really a lack of music. There wasn't much in the way of background music. Uh, and, you know, what little background music there was, it really wasn't very memorable. But other than that, still a lot of fun. And I know there was also another computer game I played around the same time. Uh, I think it was uh, Ruins of Mithranor. Uh, again, PC game. <clears throat> I remember, all I remember about this one is it was released when three, around the time when uh, 3.5 came out. Because I remember the disc I had said that it was updated for the 3.5 rules. Now, they did try to, you know, incorporate the 3.5 rules, and I think they did it fairly successfully. The only problem with this game is it moved so slowly. I mean, in Icewind Dale, yeah, you had to move your characters around, and you know, but you could move them all as in a group. And what I recall from uh, Ruins of Mithranor, you had to move your characters individually. And... It just, like I said, everything about the game just moved so slowly, and I mean, I think I played it for like a couple of days, and then it's like, okay, I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing, I have no idea where I'm supposed to go, so, uh, yeah, we're gonna uninstall this and give it to a, an unsuspecting friend, so. <laughs> but, I'd have to say, though, probably the most recent a uh, D&D based game I've actually played was uh Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance and that was for the the uh Xbox. Now this one it was okay. Uh there was some music in which again it was decent again not really particularly memorable. Your character options were pretty limited and this particular one well it's probably because it was a it was a top down you know, view uh, action game as opposed to a real role-playing game, but you had a choice of an arcane archer, a dwarven fighter, and then a sorceress who was either like half elf or elf. I forgot which. Um, but again, this one more action-oriented. The only the main complaint I had about this one is, well, it did have some replayability. The ending in the game was so disappointing because it didn't really wrap up anything and it basically lets you know, hey, there's a sequel coming. Okay, great, but the fact that, yeah, there's a sequel coming doesn't help ease the pain for the fact that I, you know, spent all this time playing this game to get an ending that didn't really resolve anything. That's just my personal pet peeve because, you know, if I play a game for you know, 20, 30 hours or more, or even if I only play a game for 5 or 10 hours and beat it. You know, I want to, I mean, that wraps everything up. That resolves it very nicely. And, like I said, going back to Pool of Radiance, it had a very nice, it had a good ending. It wrapped everything up and left you feeling satisfied. Now, my only complaint about Pool of Radiance's ending it, they left it open for a sequel because after you beat the game and talked to the town council, uh, they gave you the option to take down a character sheet, which was basically a 128-character-long password. A password that included 
uppercase, lowercase, numbers, punctuation, and special signs. So, yeah, you had this really long password, and they told you that you could use it to import your character into other games. Unfortunately, never really happened. So, and I'm, I mean, I know, I'm sure that there are other D&D games out there right now. I think most of them are uh, for the, the PC. Um, I said, I don't really do as much gaming as I used to, so... Uh, not much video gaming as I used to, so like I said, I don't really keep track of what's out there, but um, those are just some of my memories of some of the D&D-based games I've played. Again, some of them, like, uh, you know, Pool of Radiance um, and the D&D arcade games and uh, uh, Warriors of the Eternal Sun, all, you know, they turned out pretty well. They captured the essence, I think, of what D&D should be you know, dungeon crawling adventure and, uh, you know, the sense of uh, exploring your world and engaging in this story. Uh, of course, some of them like, uh, you know, Hillsfar and Mithranor didn't really do it for me. Yeah, they had some D&D elements. It's just, unfortunately, the developers of the game, you know, probably didn't really execute the, the ideas as well as they should have. But I, that's about all for now, so I uh, hope you enjoyed listening to me uh, ramble for about 40-some minutes about uh, Dungeons & Dragons video games. So, uh, again, please visit POIGamesStudio.com. Uh, please visit me on Facebook. Uh, feel free to leave comments. Uh, if you are going to leave criticism, more than welcome to leave criticism. Just please make sure it's constructive. Uh, you know, yeah, you, if you want to just leave me a comment saying that you suck, you, you can, but that's not really going to, uh, uh do much to help. Uh, if you want to say that I suck, tell me why I suck. But, uh, and then of course, if, as I said before, if you have any ideas for a topic you'd like to see me cover, you know, please feel free to, uh, post a comment, send me, uh, an email and I'll be happy to, uh, take that into consideration. Who knows? Maybe I will uh, do that subject someday. So, thank you again for listening, and have a good evening, morning, afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming.